Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm with my good friend, Matt Fitzgerald. He is the author of so many books I can't even begin to tell you, but I'm going to let him tell you uh, what's new in his hopper and what's exciting. And the reason I brought him on is because I can think of no one that has more experience in the world of feeding athletes. How to Make Racing Weight. He's actually got a book or two on the topic. And I'm dedicating this episode to the OCR racers out there that are ferreting around trying to figure out what they need to be doing in order to get in a better place from a performance perspective, having the energy to achieve some of these ultra events that they're involved in. And I, again, I couldn't think of anybody else that would be more interesting to speak with than Matt. So Matt, been a long time. Glad to have you back. What do you say, buddy? Talk about the new books. Talk about what's going on. Let's get right into this. First of all, it's great to be back uh, on your podcast. Uh, as far as what's new and exciting, uh, my latest release is a book called How Bad You Want It, subtitled Mastering Psychology of Mind Over Muscle. And I believe I read that, as I suggested yeah. to you earlier before we uh, we got on live. Yeah. And and I've had a lot of people comment to me about it. That's actually a very popular read with a lot of the endurance athletes that I, I come into. Yeah, it's actually uh, it's doing quite well, uh, which is gratifying and, and helps me pay my bills. So I'm doubly pleased. So as I suggested earlier on, I'm working with a lot of obstacle racing athletes, and they're always looking for ways to improve their performances. I mean, as is the case with most athletes, but... I just find it's a very unique group of folks, and there's just not a lot of really good information out there for them. Yep. And, you know, where we come from with backgrounds in triathlon training and such, there's just a lot of really interesting folk out there that have come up with some really interesting information, and we've had a lot of opportunity to banter back and forth with folks that we kind of carved a path and we figured things out, what works, what doesn't work. But this is basically virgin territory, which is making it a lot of fun for me. These guys put themselves through a lot. I mean, I'm sure you're aware, you look at events like the world's toughest mutter, 24 hours worth of obstacle racing through hell and high water, yeah. uh, the world championships up at Tahoe. Some of these events are grueling. And I just don't think these folks 
are being as effective as they could be in yep. respect to their feeding strategies, and I don't think that they really have a strong handle on what to do about making race weight. Yeah. So let's kind of delve into the you know the broad stroke of that, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. So you know, as a matter of philosophy, um, I I like to look to the best practices of the most successful athletes. There there's sort of two general directions you can go for guidance on you know how to eat as an endurance athlete. One is the scientific approach. So you you find a, a scientist you trust who's sort of deduced the optimal way for endurance athletes to eat based on, you know, study of biochemistry and metabolism and, uh, you know, nutrients and, and all that stuff, kind of a, a microscopic way of, of backing into figuring out what ought to work best for endurance athletes. The other approach is just much simpler. It's monkey see, monkey do. Uh, you recognize that um, endurance sports, most of the endurance disciplines have existed for a very long time. Uh, a tremendous amount of trial and error has occurred. Uh, the competitive standards in, in most of these disciplines are, uh, you know, ridiculously high. Just yesterday, a, a female middle distance runner ran a 14, 413 mile indoors to break a world record. Wow. So it's just crazy. You, know, you, you can't compete at that level unless you're doing things right. <laughs> um, and so I really favor, um, for, for reasons that we may or may not get into, I, I think it's actually impossible to scientifically deduce an optimal way of eating, whether it's for endurance performance or health or, or anything else. So I, I think that the monkey see, monkey do approach is not only simpler, but a lot more reliable. Um, so you just, there are in fact common practices, things that the, the most successful athletes are pretty much all doing. So just copy what they're doing. Of course, you know, we're all individual to a degree, Although uh, metabolic individuality is, is greatly over-exaggerated these days. And so, you know, you have to do a little bit of, of individual experimentation, but the place to start is just to, you know, emulate the top performers. Well, okay. I, and I get that. And I think from a general consensus, that's probably a, a really safe thing to do. But... Uh, Following up on what you suggested, monkey see, monkey do, the problem is the monkeys are seeing other monkeys do things that don't make sense, in my opinion, and then they get themselves into trouble. And then they follow another monkey. And so that monkey didn't bring them to the Holy Grail, so they follow another monkey. And what I'm re referring to is the variations in diet where we're going to do carb-restricted diets because so-and-so did it and it worked for him. Never mind the fact that the masses have greater success when they don't follow a process like that. So, I guess the, you got to find the generalization of monkeys. I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to use the, I'm over overbearing with this monkey thing, but you kind of get what I'm saying. It's like, given too that you su suggested to me earlier that now you're working towards an ultra marathon yourself, and this is a bit out of your wheelhouse. What are you finding in respect to success with feeding to go out and run 30, 40 miles? Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a great uh, great point you made. So just to clarify, I I'm not saying go out and emulate the first person you run into on the street. <laughs> I'm saying uh, emulate the, the proven, shared best practices of the very best athletes in the world. Um, so I'm talking about the, the guy who wins the Boston Marathon. I'm talking about the guy who wins the Tour de France. Those people at that level are all doing the same thing. Those people are not going in for the fads. And I actually am more qualified to make that statement than any other living person because I've spent 
the last two years of my life traveling all around the world studying the diets of the world's best endurance athletes in all disciplines on every continent and they're all doing the same thing the the differences are highly superficial um so fundamentally uh you know if you scratch beneath the surface you know yes kenyan runners eat ugali and and uh, you know canadian cross-country skiers don't but underneath that superficial layer they're all doing the same thing it's only the it's only the recreational types who are you know chasing wild hares with their diet so you if you, you really can uh that it really is a reliable uh approach uh, with the with the appropriate qualification that uh, you did a nice job of uh, forcing me to stipulate. <laughs> well, let's take it a step further now. And when you say that they're all pretty much doing the same thing, let's get a general consensus of what it is that they are doing. Yeah. So yeah, I've um, I've I've uh, boiled it down to five uh, common eating habits that that the elite endurance athletes share. Uh, number one is that they eat everything. Uh, so a natural human diet is not just omnivorous, but but inclusive. Um, you know, every major recognizable food type is in there. Uh, you know, no no particular food groups, food types, or nutrients are avoided. So that's number one. They eat everything. Number two is they eat quality. So while they eat everything, they don't eat equal amounts of everything. So. Uh, by and large, they're getting almost all of their calories from uh, natural, unprocessed whole foods. Uh, they do eat, you know, candy or you know, you know, fried foods occasionally, but those things are, you know, they're peripheral in their diet. So they eat everything. They eat quality. Number three, they eat carbohydrate. You know, I'm sorry for all, for all the carbohydrate bashers out there, but it's just a fact. Um, it's absolutely universal. And people always point to the example of, oh, such and such, you know, ultra marathon runner uh, is on a low carb diet. Well, an elite ultra marathon runner is a 230 marathon. In other words, they're a sea level marathon runner. There are no elite runners, uh, ultra marathon runners yet. There will be. They're fast coming because the standards are rising. There's money there. But when that happens, the Kenyans are going to dominate there just the way they do uh, in running at shorter distances. And their diet is 78% carbohydrate. So eating carbohydrate is not number three. Um, number four uh, is uh, eating enough, which basically, but what I mean by that is that they uh, they do not artificially restrict uh, the amount of food they eat um, based on calorie counts or portion sizes, uh, nor, do, nor do they make the opposite and more common mistake of eating mindlessly, ignoring their appetite and just, you know, cleaning their plate. Uh, you know, you know, whatever's served in, in the restaurant, they eat all of it until it's gone, even if it's you know more than enough. So they really they trust. Elite athletes are very good at listening to their bodies. So in terms of how they regulate the amount of food they eat, they just they really listen to uh, signals of hunger, true physical hunger and satiety coming from their body, and that allows them to to dial in the the right amount of food uh, to eat. And then number number four, so those are all universals. Number five, uh, the last common uh, characteristic is eating individually, which is there's a bit of an irony in calling individuality a common characteristic, but it's true because everyone is, uh, you know, to some extent, an experiment of one. So once you're doing those four, those first four things, then you need to sort of explore a bit and find, you know, certain things that that work better or not as well for you, and and tweak your diet accordingly. Well, that's. I'm glad I recorded that. <laughs> no, because, you know, I honestly, I think that I've always 
felt that way. And I've run into a lot of criticism from guys that, you know, they have what are commonly referred to as the study of one. They have their favorite boy that goes out and has done things beyond reason and uh, professes to having accomplished these insurmountable goals through some ridiculous process that is just difficult to emulate and be successful with. And what I'm seeing a lot of is guys that are going back and forth between the, the need or feeling the need to become uh, c- completely vegan. Yeah. And then finding out within a couple months that it just was not what they had hoped it would be. They went through this initial phase of uh, adulation and wonderment. This, the whole thing was just so beautiful for them for the first three weeks. And then the body started to crash around it. Yep. They started losing their energy stores, started losing their strength. Can we touch on that a little bit? Touch on the vegan aspect of things and what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, so if you, if you take, um, you know, I, as you might expect, I regularly receive emails um, or, you know, contact messages through my website from athletes who are struggling with uh, obstacles that are fundamentally diet related. You know, either they're getting stress fractures or they're anemic or, you know, they're um, not, they're recovering poorly, they're getting sick all the time, whatever it is. And the, the people who come to me with those problems, 99 out of 100 of them are overthinking their diet. They're trying to get too clever. So just, you know, I, my, my short description of the diet that's shared by the world's best endurance athletes is a high quality version of a culturally normal diet. Uh, that's it. That's all you really, all you really need to do. Um, it's the people who try to make it a lot more complicated than that that end up getting themselves in, into trouble. Um, so, you know, there are vegans who perform very well as endurance athletes. There are uh, low-carb people who perform well, paleo people who, who perform well, you, know, you name it. But uh, you, you make it harder for yourself. You, you actually just increase, you increase the likelihood that you'll crash and burn by going on these special diets instead of doing the high quality version of a culturally normal diet. So, you know, why do it? Why, why unnecessarily increase the risk for things going wrong? Um, you know, if you have, you know, an ethical reason for not wanting to eat meat, fine. But if it's just a performance reason, don't do it, you know, keep it simple and, you know, do what, what is most likely to work for uh, the average person. What I see happen, and I don't know, I don't have any empirical uh, information to support this, but I'm just thinking that off the cuff that let's just say, for example, because your friends and neighbors have gone vegan and you feel like uh, under the peer pressure of performance, you know, maybe maybe so-and-so has dropped the weight that you had hoped you'd lose because he's gone vegan. And then you think, I just got to pull the trigger on this. I got to go vegan so that I can become, you know, lighter and faster and make my race weight optimally. Um, and then, as I suggested earlier, three, four weeks out, maybe even a couple months out, you realize that, in fact, it wasn't going as you hoped. The unwinding of that process and turning the table and going back into the normal uh, the, uh, training table is, do you think there's any damage associated with that, even over the long or short term? Um, empirically, I, I can't say. Um, though, you know what? Uh, something, something is tingling in the back of my head. Uh, I, I think, I think there might be something to that. I can't point to any research in particular. What, what I can tell you for sure is on a psychological side. 
certain people are more susceptible to you know fad and extreme diets. So what I often see is uh, a person who's uh, tried one of them has tried more than one, or if they if they've tried their first, they're probably going to try others. So there's a certain you know personality type and you know the sort of reasons behind they might you know why they might be searching in the way they are. Um, they are susceptible. They're vulnerable. And and I see what I see is that those people never do find what they're they're looking for. So um, you know they're convinced you know from from the inside looking out that if they, that there's a holy grail to use your term out there that they just need to find it, um, but it never happens. Once that search begins, it it, it never ends. Um, so you know to me that's why the only solution I really really peddle is just kind of the boring vanilla mainstream high quality version of a, a culturally normal diet because um, it, it, um, it doesn't prey on that vulnerability. You know, not only does it work, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, I think it's saner <laughs> on top of working. Right. Well, what, I, what we've always done, and, you know, you know that over the years we've offered up nutritional advice for people and, the nutritional advice that I typically offer up is basically balanced nutrients. You know, we want to make sure that they're getting the adequate amount of protein versus carbs versus fat in their diet, and then try to uh, sequence the eating patterns so that they're getting food when they need it, uh, not when they don't, and trying to find a rhythm so that they, they, they tend to feel better. First thing that we ask people when we got them on a plan is how they feel. We don't ask them, did they lose any weight? We don't ask them to measure themselves. We want to know how they feel. Are they sleeping better? And when I start to see those type of pointers coming back where they start noticing that they have the energy they need in the course of the day, they find that they're sleeping more soundly, and just commonly uh, they have better energy levels, I think we're on to something. Yeah. Um, I find that when, when people try to stave off food or maybe eat too few calories in a particular meal, and then the, the timeline that they kind of restrain themselves to, suggesting maybe three-hour uh, increments be between meals, um, maybe that like becomes a push that is just too hard to wait the three hours, given the amount of food they've eaten. And so what we try to do is we tweak the amount of food they're going to get relative to the time they're going to eat it and making sure that all the nutrients that are necessary are in each and every meal, opposed to restricting a type of a nutrient in one meal versus the other, and so on and so forth. So we try to basically, I guess, as you suggested, keep it pretty simple yeah. and uh, just make sure that all the players are there. And I just think that when you start getting into a, a rhythm of feeling like the carbs are the enemy and that they're making you fat, and, and you know, the, the new thing that's really been fun to watch is Oprah going on with Weight Watchers and talking about, I can eat bread now, uh -huh. and where she spent how many years telling people not to eat bread, right? Right. It, it just, it's just comical to me. It really yeah. is. But I like your point about, uh, about uh, focusing on how you feel. Um, you know, of, of those five uh, characteristics of, you know, the diets of elite endurance athletes that I named, if I were going to single out one as the most important, um, it would be eating enough. Um, because if you don't eat enough, you will feel terrible. <laughs> you know, there's a tendency to, to look at everything through the lens of the obesity epidemic, right? So, you know, in society as a whole, 
uh, eating too much is the problem. And when you eat too much, you get fat. And when you get fat, you, you know, eventually get diabetes or whatever. But with endurance athletes, it's rather different. You know, if you have a choice between eating too much and eating too little, you should eat too much because if you're eating too much, your training, your workouts will be well-fueled. And the only price you're going to pay is that you're going to be a little bit too heavy on the starting line. If you eat too little, your training, your fitness is going to stagnate. Your workouts are going to be terrible. Your recovery is going to be non-existent. And you're going to get injured, and you probably will never even make it to the starting line. That's a much longer list <laughs> of consequences. Now, I'm not advocating eating too much. You should eat the right amount, neither too much nor too little. But it's good to uh, it's a it's, an, it's a worthy exercise to go through to sort of uh, wrap your head around the difference. You really need to shift perspective. You know, we're talking about eating for endurance performance, not for looking good naked anymore. Right. Well, you know, and I've heard people talk about. And this is kind of crazy. I mean, I got to tell you, I, I had a hard time with this from the gate. But I've heard people actually talking about fasting for two days before they go out and do a long workout in order to try to train their body to access fat stores more efficiently. And I, I don't know how in the heck anybody expects that to be of any value. You know, the point you made about eating more than you need to as opposed to not eating enough leading into an event and even potentially right up into the race morning. I think that's a really good point because people tend to want, especially women, if we're going to just kind of put a gender on it, they tend to feel that less is better and just to suffer through it. And I just think that I find commonly that when we have people eat a little more than they think they should, they actually have a better success rate with weight loss. They tend yeah. to even lose weight quicker and, and more value of weight loss. They tend to release the fat when their body's getting what they need because I think the body goes into protection when you don't get enough fuel, right? Yeah, I, I see that quite often. I, I still can't quite wrap my head around it in terms of the physics of it, but it's undeniably true that you see uh, restrained eaters among endurance athletes who – gain weight, you know, in the process of training for a marathon or, uh, you know, an Ironman or what have you. It, it's a, a very real phenomenon. So let's kind of back up and, and cause this to be a case study. We're going to take John Doe and Jane Doe, and let's just say that across the board, they're carrying, I don't know, 10, 15 pounds more weight than they're efficient with. I guess is the word I want to use. And we're talking about, let's just kind of characterize who they are. They're, they're good athletes, but they're on the cusp of becoming great athletes. And as you'll probably agree with me that weight matters. I mean, if you're carrying a little bit more baggage than you need to, it's going to be expensive. So they're trying to get to this place. And let's just say that they've got to get to this place inside of, uh, let's give them 60 days in order to be at optimal weight to perform. What would you think would be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth steps? Oh, you got five steps. Let's go with five steps. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the first thing I would do is, is drive home uh, the very important point that uh, you cannot co-prioritize maximizing fitness gain and maximizing weight loss. You have to choose one or the other because – uh, the, 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 the fastest way to lose weight 
is a sure way to sabotage your, your training for, for endurance fitness. You certainly can lose excess body fat in the process of getting fitter. You can and should if you have excess fat to lose, but you cannot lose it as quickly as you could if, if you didn't care about how you performed in your workouts and you could afford to maintain you know, a fairly significant uh, daily energy deficit. So that, that's number one. So you know, when, 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 when weight loss is truly the top priority, and that really means you don't have a big race looming in, in the near future, then you can take some time to engage in what, what I call you know, a, weight, a weight loss focus period. So you take four to eight weeks where you do cut calories and you do a bunch of little things differently than you would if you were trying to you know, get ready to perform as well as you possibly could. So an athlete in that situation who's 60 days out from a race I, w- I would make sure they were absolutely clear about that. Like your goal at this point is not to lose weight. Your goal is to be as fit as you can on that race, uh, on that starting line. Now, is it likely that if you do things correctly, you will be a little bit lighter at that point? Yes, but don't lose perspective. Keep your eye on the prize, which is fitness. Um, so that would be number one. I would want to make sure the athlete was on board with that. Everything we do, we're doing for fitness. And if you lose weight, that's, that's uh, a nice side benefit of doing things correctly. Um, so does that make sense? Well, it does. Um, but I guess the caveat to that is that there has to be a happy medium in respect to shoring down some of the bulk while you're working on your fitness. And I don't know whether that's just a function of creating a manageable amount of debt because I, I get the whole idea of being either catabolic or anabolic. And if you're not getting enough food, your body's catabolic behind the the expense of the exercise. But there's got to be this happy medium where there's an appropriate amount of food that you could consume while you're training where it doesn't become the enemy that you're, you're cutting back your calories so far that it starts to become a problem in your performances. And even if it's muscle that we're losing, it's still weight and it's still costly and from a caloric expense. I mean, isn't there some kind of a happy medium that you could you can look at that's been um, something you've worked with or been successful with? It, it, I'm not going to say it's impossible to thread the needle in that way, to start, sort of separate the weight management piece from the fitness building piece, but you're playing with fire. And most athletes, they're just not ready to, to, to juggle in that way. Um, and there's usually... Usually, you know, when you take a look at what an athlete's you know, currently doing, there's a lot of room for, for improvement. So, you know, you can make a lot of progress, you know, with both fitness building and shedding excess body fat just by getting them to do things by the book uh, for fitness building, both with training and, and diet. So get them to do everything by the book and then, you know, reassess. But don't start right out of the gate. Uh, just trying to get them to go to bed hungry uh, and, and, and hope that it doesn't sabotage their workout. So, um, you know, I, I really prefer to avoid getting the cart before the horse at all costs. All right. Well, let me give you a, uh, an example of an individual I'm actually working with now. And I'm not going to use his name. He's going to know who I'm talking about. <laughs> so I got a guy that's a high caliber athlete and a great runner in every respect. And he's been coined, actually, uh, I think it was Max King was the one that said that this fellow's probably, no, I take that back. It was Hobie Call that said, this guy's probably the fastest runner in the world relative to his weight. So here's a guy that weighs about 190 pounds. 
And inside of about a 10-mile event, he's, he'll crush most everyone, regardless of weight. And the difference between being at 180, 185 versus 190 seems to be significant for him. It seems like when he gets his weight down, that's those extra five or 10 pounds, the payback relative to his ability to sustain work over the longer haul, meaning inside of about a half marathon distance or maybe a bit longer, he, he just does better. He's faster. As a matter of fact, this fella, I mean, I'm almost giving it away, but this fella just won an Xterra event, um, about a 20K, I think 21K event, and uh, set a record and beat the guy that held the record by four minutes. And the guy that had the record was 145 pounds. He's 190. And they clocked him at mile six at about 4.33, which is probably on a downhill stretch. But at the end of the day, that's a pretty long event for a guy to go over a trail at 190 pounds just from a standpoint of caloric expense. So I guess the, the thing that we're trying to figure out is what is it that we can do? I mean, can we, can we shore back enough calories uh, at the risk of sacrificing a bit of the fitness or what's the hierarchy? Do you try to lose the weight first, then get fit and try to gain it back? I mean, it's it's almost akin to trying to move your threshold, right? The, yep. the, the efforts you do to try to improve your aerobic threshold are contrary to what you do to improve your fitness. And I, I just think that it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's a fairly unique case, though. There are other athletes, you know, who are like that. You know, Chris McCormick comes to mind, uh, the heaviest athlete ever to win the Ironman World Championship. Uh, interestingly, he lost it six times before he won, no, several times anyway, before he won it. Um, and he won it at the heaviest rate, at the heaviest weight at which he'd ever towed the starting line. So that's what I see more often, is athletes who are sort of bigger assume they have to be smaller. And, uh, you know, getting a little bit lighter in itself is a positive. It's what they have to do to get there that makes it not at all worth it. So, you know, with, with your athlete, you know, because he is, you know, elite, uh, so there's a lot on the line. So, you know, it's worth, you know, perhaps taking some risks. Um, you know, the difference between first and second is, is significant. I, I might try some things with him, uh, but um, having him eat less than, than his uh, appetite demands is not high on the list of things I would try. Right. Uh, okay. But let's take it from a different perspective. Then we increase the volume. So we actually do more work, which in turn is going to cause that catabolic effect. He's going to start dropping weight opposed to cutting back the calories. Do you feel like that's a, a better approach? Yeah, the first thing I would do is just have him, uh, I wouldn't even want him to see a dumbbell, let alone lift one. You know, he, he, he should do all body weight type stuff um, so that he, you know, it's just, you know, keeping his body balanced, but not, you know, you know, some people, they just, you know, they just, you know, they look at a dumbbell and they gain muscle. So he, he might be one of those guys. So that would be the first thing I would do with training, just have him do his planks and, and such, but you know, no squats, no, no heavy lifting of any kind. Uh, yes, going, going big with volume, but also making, making the high intensity really high intensity. A lot of athletes have the experience that even when their volume is high, when they suddenly add in their intervals, they just get shredded quick. <laughs> so, you know, volume is, volume is, is very helpful uh, for leaning out, but volume balanced with, you know, appropriate doses of, of very high intensity is, it seems to be kind of the, the magic formula for, for leanness. 
Well, it's interesting you say that because that's exactly what we're doing right now. It's yeah. we, we're doing uh, uh, a lot of body weight uh, level exercises and appreciate that in obstacle racing, you, you can't sacrifice your upper body strength. You, you've got to keep that. Right. And you, you have to have a, a, an, an ample amount of strength globally. You can't just focus on your, your wheels. Uh, but we have been doing a lot of high-intensity intervals backed up with a lot of volume and really, really sh- keeping away from heavy lifting. It's all been body weight, kettlebells, things like that, but nothing, nothing real heavy. But the intensity has been atrocious. I mean, some of the work we're doing is really, really hardcore, but only um, on an average of one, max two times a week is what we're doing the rest of it's pretty much aerobic fitness and just, you know, trying to keep everything in check, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about one more thing that I think would be, well, maybe not one more thing, but the thing that's on my mind, and, and I, I started thinking about it earlier, and we got off onto another thing, but what are your thoughts on the supplementation? I mean, there's a lot of guys that are pumping these branched-chain amino acids. I've always kind of been against that. I think it's kind of a waste of money. Yeah. Uh, relative to just consuming wholesome foods. Kind of give me a rant on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there, certainly there is no must-have supplement for endurance performance. Um, there's no creatine for endurance athletes, as it, as it were. Um, you know, it's again, po- pointing to the real world, it's interesting to note that the, the best runners in the world are from East Africa, where you cannot even find supplements. Uh, so that's all the evidence you read right need right there that you don't need them. Also, uh, what I found in my research uh, with you know endurance athletes in various disciplines around the world is that they they go they they tend to go very light on supplementation just because they're wary. You know they're so scared of a false positive uh, that you know most again you know it's, it's the competitive recreational athletes who are going big on supplements. It's not the Tour de France winners so much. Um, and, then, and then again, there again is more evidence that, you know, how, how necessary can these things possibly be if the very, very, very best athletes in the world just aren't, aren't using them. Um, so I, I prefer to stay, I, I, have, I have nothing particular against supplements. I, I don't like, you know, painting with too broad a brush stroke and saying, you know, either, either, either the more the merrier or they're all bad. I think you have to, you know, you have to judge them case by case, but, uh, again, it's 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 not low hanging fruit. You know, so many athletes they have just basic problems with their diet. That's the low hanging fruit. You fix those problems, and you know you're 99 percent of the way there. Then maybe you can think about supplements. Uh, the supplements I do tend to like are those that are not for endurance performance. Uh, you know, the the branch chain amino acids and the beta alanine and all this stuff. But the the, the ones that you just need for health. Um, you know, there are common deficiencies in endurance athletes. Iron, uh, vitamin D, uh, omega-3, essential fats, uh, those things, taking those just uh, for your health. And of course, health is the foundation of performance. Um, uh, I, I'm generally thumbs up on, on those. Well, that's that's good stuff. What, how about, uh, you know, the new thing seems to be the beet juice. Have you toyed with that at all? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, <laughs> I'm a pretty big beet juice guy. Um, you know, I just, uh, like everyone else, I saw the research, I found it intriguing, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was plausible in terms of the, the mechanism. And again, beet juice isn't a supplement, it, it is food, it's food, uh, you know, it just, it, it's a food that happens to be, you know, rich in a nutrient, uh, which, you know, has a particular effect that, that 
could enhance endurance performance. You know, if it does, it's not by much. You know, the studies go back and forth. Um, but I started experimenting with it. You can't tell. I mean, if you're getting, you know, a 0.5% performance improvement from using something like that, it's not like no one can honestly say, oh, yeah, I felt the difference. <laughs> you, just, you, just, you just trust the research. And, you know, if it's not a catastrophe for you, you know, if you drink the beet juice and throw up three miles into a marathon, then you know, you know, to leave it alone. Otherwise, you just, you know, if it, if it doesn't seem to hurt and the research says it might be helping, hey, go for it. Well, I, I've, uh, I've talked to some folks that are uh, very involved in the whole production of the uh, beet juice products. Uh, beet Elite, for example, being very popular among the uh, OCR athlete community. And I had uh, an interview with John Ivey. I'm sure you're familiar with John Ivey. He's yes. And he, uh, great guy, and he, you know, he told me that he felt that guys like me uh, stand to have more benefit from beet elite or beet juice opposed to a young uh, elite athlete. It's just my body's just going to be more receptive to the benefits of, of taking it on. And not to mention that, uh, you know, me, I drink too much. And, and uh, <laughs> I I was looking at it as a detox motive. And, and he's saying, man, well, you know, I said, should I take like four of them, you know, in the morning? <laughs> he says, no, more is not better. But um, I've taken it and I, I've been I've been actually playing with it. And as you suggested, I, I can't remember the day where because I supplemented with it before a workout that I came away going, whoa, man, I just rocked it. Right. Uh, I, I do think that there's a kind of a general sense of improvement in my day, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how you put your finger on that, but uh, yeah. even if it's a placebo effect, I'll take what I can get, right? Yeah, yeah, the placebo effect is not to be underestimated. But but anyway, yeah, I, I am pro beet juice. I, I, I have used it. Uh, I intend to use it in, in the future. Cool. So you're gonna run an ultra marathon? Yes. Do you know which one? I'm sure. Oh, you yeah, do. yeah. I've uh, circled on my calendar the American River 50 Mile uh, in Folsom, California. And when is that? April 2nd. Oh, so you're just you're about you're about dialed into it now, huh? Yeah, um, uh, it's getting pretty close. I'm super excited. I'm um, you know I held off doing. I'm 44, but I started running when I was 11, so I, I really held off. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, busting my ultra cherry, as it were, um, because you know, I, honestly, I, I feel I've never run a decent marathon in my life. I, I felt that you know the shorter distances were my strength, uh, so I figured, well, if I always hit the wall in marathons, why would I want to go any further? But then what happened was I started slowing down at every distance that I'd ever run before. So I thought, you know what? To avoid comparing myself against my former self, I need to do something I haven't done before. Uh, so it was really sort of a, a negative way of backing myself into going ultra. But now that I've, I've made the decision and started pursuing it, I, I'm having a blast. I'm, I'm really enjoying it quite a lot. Uh, you know, talk to me on April 3rd, and I might sing a different tune, depending on how the race itself goes. But uh, it's a, it's been a fun journey. Well, I have friends that are really big into doing ultras, and I, they just seem to be different creatures. They seem like they... Uh, well, I'll give, give you a good example. Nicodemus Holland, who I do a lot of work with, and Nick is just a monster, man. I mean, he can do this stuff. And, I mean, we don't even have conversations about soreness. He doesn't talk to me about, man, this, this last race was really rough on my knee or my IT band was singing or none of that. He just kind of does them, and he just does them well and gets through it and no problem. He just did the Hurt 100 and, uh, oh, gosh, he just – 
it seems like about once a month or so he's doing a hundred miler and, and it just doesn't seem to bother. I don't know. I, I think it's a, a particular breed, but yeah. Yeah. And actually it, it makes me want to walk back my earlier comment a, a bit about there not being any elite ultra runners that uh, of course there are. And that it, that's just it. What, um, what distinguishes the people who really excel is seems to be a kind of durability. So you, you see some people who, who can't run any faster than 2.30 for a marathon, but they, they're they indestructible. And, and when they gravitate to the longer distances, they shine. And it will be kind of interesting for me to see, uh, when I was in Kenya last year, I saw all these, they have so much, such depth of talent. And you see all these people who are, you know, if they were American, they would be among the best, but they can't even get an agent. And I thought, you know, what if you took some of these runners and gave them opportunities at the ultra distance. You know, these guys would be, you know, 209, 210, 211 marathoners. And, and those, you know, the, those people just don't do ultras yet. And, and, and some of those guys, some of those Kenyan guys and other people who are that fast, they've got to be durable too. So I'm really curious to see, I, I'm almost, in, uh, I'm almost considering becoming an agent myself and trying to make, make this thing happen. But uh, yeah, indestructibility is not my strength. Uh, I, I get injured, uh, at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just uh, white knuckling my way to the start line of this one. Well, yeah, looking back at some of the guys that, that do this, and this is going to kind of segue us very nicely into your latest book, which is How Bad Do You Want It? I think it really is a mental game for the most part. It's not really a physical game. They just tend to be uh, mental grips. They just have the tenacity and the drive to push their bodies through this where others may falter. Me, for one. I mean, I just never had it in me to want to go that far. Or I'm That far meaning 26.4. 26.2 I've done, but I had no need or want to go that other two-tenths. It's just yeah. too, too far, too hard for me. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, every, everyone who's ever done an ultra will, will tell you exactly that, that, you know, it is. Uh, you know, to paraphrase Yogi Berra, um, uh, was it 90% of ultra running is half mental or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, Yogi Berra said that, did he? That's, that I ho- I'm hoping that's the case because, you know, I, I want, I want that mental tenacity to be one of the advantages that I, I bring to ultra running. Uh, certainly, you know, you know, in the training, you know, I, I did a 37 mile run training run last Saturday and it was hard. You know, I, I threw in a lot of hills and, and uh, you know, I, I felt a bit of, you know, just, that suck, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, just to be, to be sort of, you know, uh, working hard and realize you've got hours to go still. That's a daunting thought. And it does take a kind of mental preparedness, uh, to, you know, turn that to your advantage relative to the people you're racing against. What do you feel is going to be your longest training run leading up to this event? I've done it already. That, that, that there was a five hour, 37 mile run. I did, um, because for me, um, the you know the the range has always been the hardest thing for me to build. I, I need to keep working at it and working at it, you know. So I started with my longest run was two hours, and then two hours and fifteen minutes, then two thirty, and just kept chipping away and chipping away. What happened was, you know, I just got to a point where I just kept improving, you know. And and, and honestly, in that five hour run I did, although I did suffer it was actually a lot easier than I thought it would be. So the, the training is working. Now it's just the point I'm at the point where don't get greedy, you know, don't get, don't get drunk on the fumes of your own fitness. Cause I've done that before. You're like, okay, well, if I'm this fit six weeks out, 
just imagine how much fitter I could be if I just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So I'm not going to go any further, though I will have some other challenges ahead. I'm going to run two marathons, not racing them, but making them extra challenging in certain ways. Uh, but at this point, it's just a matter of dialing in, make sure that my fitness is uh, specific to the, the, the course and conditions I'm going to be on. Uh, you know, dialing in my, in my nutrition plan and just making sure that I start on fresh legs. Cause that's one thing I haven't done yet, you know, uh, is, you know, done really hard, uh, done, you know, run really long on fresh legs. So are you talking about doing a couple of marathons within the same week, same day? What, what are you planning? No, I'm doing a uh, one on March 6th. Uh, so that's like four weeks out and one on March 22nd, uh, which is, um, just two weeks out. The first one I'm going to do is a, a carb fasted run. Uh, I've done a couple of those already. So I'll just, I'll wake up on the morning of the race and eat a breakfast, but a complete a zero carb breakfast. And then when I run the marathon, I'll drink only water just to make it more challenging than, than it would be uh, otherwise. And then for the, uh, the second marathon, I'm going to fuel that one normally, but I'm going to run it uh, fast ish. I'm going to, I'm going to push the pace without going all out. Uh, because I just, you know, I feel that um, it'll be a confidence builder more than anything to see if I can, uh, you know, maintain a certain pace that, that's significantly faster than the pace I hope to sustain for twice the distance, you know, a couple weeks later. All right. So you just opened Pandora's box. You're going to run a marathon carb depleted. And then what, what do you hope to gain from that other than finding out that it hurts like hell? Um, you know what? I, I don't expect it to hurt like hell. I, um, a few weeks ago, I did a 23-mile carb-fasted run on, on the second half of the American River 50 race course, um, and it was easy. I, I ran it with uh, another runner who's not quite as fast as I am, so the pace was was gentle, um, but it went fine. Uh, you know, I, I, it, uh, so what I hope, in terms of what I hope, I, I don't expect it to hurt particularly, um, and what I hope to gain out of it is, you know, the research shows that um, by becoming extra glycogen depleted, which you will do if you're, you know, in a carb, uh, a low carb, or a, if you're not supplementing with carbohydrate, um, you, it, uh, you know, it, uh, it stimulates the genes that are responsible for mitochondrial biogenesis. You just, you build more aerobic machinery in a long carb fasted run than you would do in a long carb fueled run. Uh, so it's just a little, you're just adding stress. Uh, in it, but in a positive way. Again, you know, there are people who make too much of this and they do carb fasted runs all the time. I, I don't see any rationale for that. There's, you know, there's there's multiple tools in the toolbox. You need to use all of them, and and so this is just one, uh, just one of them for me. Well, you you know, I started out this conversation earlier about 15 minutes ago talking about people convinced that a two day fast leading into a long effort was of value do you, do you think that there's a limit to the to the extent of this type of thing uh yeah for sure i mean it, it's definitely an area of ferment um if you look at uh the elite level um you know about a year ago i spent a few days at a training camp in spain for one of the top uh cycling teams in the world the dutch team um and you know they're playing around with some stuff i mean they're all on heart high carb diets uh, you have to be, you know, when you're training that hard. But they do, uh, they do withhold carbohydrate. Uh, you know, they'll do um, just like I suggested, carb fasted workouts. They'll do overnight carb fasts. 
Uh, and there's pretty good research showing that while you want your base diet to be rich in carbohydrate, that's uh, kind of you know making it difficult for yourself. It's almost the, it's almost the same rationale for altitude training. Why do you go at altitude? Because it's harder up there. You're adding stress to the training experience. Uh, but you know the smart athletes they don't do their high quality runs and uh, you know and and ride at, at high altitudes. So they don't. Again, it's not a, a case of oh, pretending there's only one tool in, in the toolbox. So. You know, I don't think we fi- we figured out exactly the best way to use some of these tools, uh, intermittent fasting and, and, and you know, withholding carbs. But uh, I think there's enough there to show that they, when the when the dust settles, that the most dialed in athletes will make use of some of those techniques. Hmm. Wow. But this again, it, what you see happening is like you'll see recreational athletes who haven't done the basic stuff yet, who are, who are trying that stuff. And again, it's the cart before the horse. It's like, first of all, you know, stop eating ice cream every night. <laughs> you know, then, you know, when you've got all your ducks in a row, then we can start, you know, some of the fancy stuff if you feel like it. But you see people with this magic bullet mentality who want to keep eating like crap and then, you know, fast for two days and, and, yeah, forgive me for interrupting, but that's pretty much the theme of this conversation is yeah. that I'm trying to get people to understand that there are so much more that we can do with the basic necessities opposed to trying to reach out and find that magic bullet, as you suggested. Getting back to other toys that are out there in the market, this training mask that everybody feels compelled to to do uh, selfies with. Uh, I just don't see the rationale for this type of thing. And there's so many things you could do in training that would develop your body much more efficiently than trying to restrict your ability to get air. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, but it's just, you know, that's where, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, you feel bad for people who just, they don't know any better. And, and so when a Pied Piper comes along, you know, giving them something that's too good to be true, uh, they're, they're, they're vulnerable to those types of messages. On the other hand, sometimes you just want to slap people for not having common sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been doing that. I've been walking around slapping people lately. <laughs> well, look, at man, I uh, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this with me. I always enjoy having conversation with you. It's been a long time. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I know. I uh, it, it's, uh, haven't uh, made my way down to the OC in, in, in too long. Uh, we'll have to rectify that uh, yeah, yeah. one way or another. Yeah, well, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Last little bit, since we haven't talked in a while, and the last time we talked, I was banging the drum about what I thought was going to be the future of this whole new sport. I'm sure you've been paying attention to it lately, and it's really becoming a boon. I've, I've, I've uh, almost turned my back on most everything else and have been solely focused on working with these guys, and I have enjoyed every moment of it. It's a really interesting community of athletes, and the sport's growing and money's getting into it, and you know they're getting media coverage. It, it's really turning into something. Have you got any kind of like uh, backyard thoughts about where it's heading and, and uh, whether you feel like there is going to be a place for you in this sport? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, on a personal level, I, I kind of feel like I wish I had been born 30 years later um, because I think I would have been good at that kind of stuff. But um, I'm so far down the road with just, you know, kind of a, an old school, you know, runner triathlete that as of yet, I haven't felt a particular urge to immerse myself in that world. I'm really glad it's flourishing. I like permutations. I mean, 
I'm a big fan of the beer mile for crying out loud. I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm for all of it, you know, um, you know, so I want to see it flourish. And if it does, you know, I, I, I will, um, no doubt get sucked into it, but I'm, I won't pretend to be an expert for a long time. I'll need to do a lot of learning before I do any teaching in that realm for sure. Well, I think that that that's the beauty of it in my respect is I think that it's just such uh, virgin territory and there's no experts in the field, and it's difficult, as you suggested, profess that you are one because there's just not enough information out there to really validate any theories, right? Yeah. So, but um, I got to tell you, you know, you talk about, well, I'm so far down the road, dude. You're 44. I'm 60, <laughs> I'm 63 years old. Okay. Oh my God. I know, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I, it's amazing that I'm still able to speak to you. <laughs> So I don't know. I just uh, I, I, I've become passionate about it. I just really have enjoyed the community at large. Interesting people, very very different than some of the other athletes I've worked with, and and I've really really come to enjoy it. But yeah, for yeah, whatever, got to be a sense of adventure that's uh, common to the personalities of people who are early adopters for for that sport. Yep. Well, look, uh, I wish you the best on the American what's it, American River Fifty. That's right. I want you to crush it, man. You know what? Second place is first loser. Yeah, I'm. Uh, <laughs> uh, someone will have to die for me to win, but I'm, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Just one guy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. And uh, but let's give a little plug for your books. I think they need to find you. MattFitzgerald.com. Is that it? Uh, no, 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 no. Some other clown has .com. I'm mattfitzgerald.org, and I've, I've just revamped my website. It looks uh, very good to me, and I'm not patting myself on the back if someone else did it, so have a look. mattfitzgerald.org, and the book that's uh, on plate right now is How Bad Do You Want It? I remember reading it, and it's a fascinating read, and I think it's going to surprise people based on the title that it isn't quite what they thought, right? Yeah, there's a, a lot of storytelling in there. So if you liked Iron War, you'll probably like this one. And if you didn't read Iron War, read both. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've told you a hundred times that that's my favorite book that you've written. And yeah. I've, I've recommended it to many, many folks. Yeah. All right, buddy. Enjoy your day. Thanks a lot for doing this with me. Thank you. All right. Take care. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.